Christ. Amen. Amen. We thank God for bringing us together in this way as we sing out to Him, as we offer um, our resources in worship to Him, and as we consider um, countries that are persecuted so that our minds are clear as to how to pray and even how to look to Him. We are in the book of Mark. We are in chapter 12, verse 13 to 17. And the title this morning is in the form of a question, Who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? This is Mark chapter 12, verse 13 up until verse 17. Let us have the reading of God's word. I read from the ESV. Who do you belong to? And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it, it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and, said to, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let us pray. Lord, as we uh, consider this passage this morning, our greatest desire is to render to you the things that belong to you. To render our lives, our very lives in their wholeness. We pray that you speak to us this morning through your word. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Who do you belong to? Now, let us remember that Jesus is in Jerusalem at this point in time. Things are heating up in Jerusalem. Jesus has offended the religious powers, and they are out to get him. If you remember in chapter 11, verse 18, where now they are planning to destroy him um, because he is, he is kind of um, exposing them and exposing their wickedness. They want him dead. So they, they come to him in an effort to lay a trap for him. They, they want Jesus to make a verbal mistake that they can use to their own advantage. The text before us that we just read today is the first in a series of attacks launched by the enemies of the Lord Jesus. Their goal in all of these attacks is to either discredit him with the people or to have a reason to accuse him before the state. They are out to get Jesus and they do not care how they accomplish their goal. In this text, they, they come to Jesus with a question of ownership. This, this, this challenge from these evil men has something to say to our hearts today, especially as we raise that question, who do you belong to? It's a question that I think we must ask ourselves. 
Whose authority am I under? Who do I belong to? And I just wanted to uh, share two thoughts with you today. I want you to see first the Jews and their attack, and I want you to see the Lord and his answer. The, the, the teaching is, that is found in this text gets right to the heart of who we are and who we serve. The Lord has something to say to his people and to those who do not know him as well. Here's a word for your heart today. God wants you to know that he has a claim on your life. He wants you to know that he, he, you have an obligation to serve him. He wants you to know that you must know who you belong to. So let's move through this text together as I try to preach about that question. Who do you belong to? First of all, in verse 13 to verse 15a, we see the Jews and their attack. The, the Jews and their attack. Notice in verse 13a, verse 13a of chapter 12, let me read for you. It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. We see the conspirators here. This verse tells us that the man who approached Jesus came from two different groups that held opposing beliefs. It would be surprising to the people, even when they are with Jesus and they see the Herodians and the Pharisees coming in unison. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. They were very legalistic in that they tried to keep the very letter of the law of God perfectly. The, the, the name Pharisee means the separatist, the, the ones who are separated. Still, they were marked by pride and self-righteousness. They were often rebuked by Jesus because their religious activities were merely external in nature. They had no real faith and no relationship with God. Yet the Pharisees were very nationalistic in their political views. They, they hated being under Roman rule and wanted to be free from it. They, they hated everything about Rome. They, they wanted to, the people to separate from Rome, to, to not be part of what was happening and what the Romans were doing. Or on the other hand, we have the Herodians. The, 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 the Herodians were a political party among the Jews who were supporters of King Herod. They enjoyed the benefits they received because of the Roman occupations. You can even hear it in their names. They are supporters of Herod, Herodians. While the, the, the Romans controlled their country, the, the people enjoyed religious freedom, protection and prosperity. King Herod supported the Romans and sought to bring Roman culture to Israel. Normally, these two groups had nothing to do with one another. They were polar opposites. They had opposing ideologies, uh, opposing beliefs. They, they hated one another, to put it simple. Yet they came together for the common goal of destroying Jesus. There are two forces that have power to unite people, for either good or evil. Those forces are love and hate. I've seen people unite um, in love um, for the common good. And I've seen the hate unite people in a quest to destroy others. 
these men were brought together in their common hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they, they saw Jesus as a threat to their way of life. And so they put their differences aside and united in their common goal to destroy Jesus. Sadly, you see these same conspiracies in church life as well. People will unite in their frustration and aggravation. They will come together for the common goal of getting rid of a pastor they don't like or of undermining people they don't agree with. Or when those kind of activities take place, they are certainly not of the Lord. They are a work of the flesh. The the church and, and church people should be united by the bond of love. When we are controlled by love, we will seek good and not evil. Uh, may our love be our calling card as, uh, uh, as we travel through this world. May we be characterized by love. Remember in John chapter 13 verse 35, Jesus looks at his disciples as he prepares um, uh, uh, you know, himself for the cross. He, he wants his disciples to be united, to be marked and to be identified by love. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And he says, by this the world will know that you are my disciples. It is only as we display love towards one another that we are seen to be the disciples of Christ. Now we see the conspirators, the Herodians and the Pharisees. Now let us look at the conspiracy itself in verse 13b. Look at verse 13b of of Mark. Uh, They come together, the Pharisees and the Herodians. It says to trap him in his talk. So the conspiracy is to trap Jesus. This man came together in an effort to trap him in his talk. The word trap has the idea of hunting or of setting a trap to catch one's prey. They are putting a trap before him so that he would get himself in trouble. They wanted to outsmart Jesus and get him to say something that would get him in trouble either with the Roman authorities or the common people. They thought that they could trap him in that way. If they could get Jesus to offend Rome, they could label him as an insurrectionist and Rome would take uh, uh, take care of their problem for them. If they could discredit Jesus with the common people, he would lose influence there. Either way, their problem would be solved. It didn't matter how they trapped him. Either way, he would be either in trouble with Rome as an insurrectionist or he would lose credibility with the people. Now, it is a tragedy when people seek to trap others so they can attack them. But this happens far too often in our world, doesn't it? When a person listens to the words and watches the actions of another in an effort to find fault with them, that person has a serious spiritual problem. That is not the way of love, is it? First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 tells us that love is not resentful. 
In fact, in the in, in the King James, it puts it this way: it says, "Love thinketh not evil." Literally, this means to take no worthless list, to have a worthless list in your mind. Real love does not remember injury one, believe all it hears about another two, look for fault in others three. If this attitude were practiced in the church, it will solve about 90% of any church's troubles. The, the, the problem with the Pharisees and the Herodians was that they were lost men who operated in the power of the flesh. They had religion, but they did not have salvation. That makes them the most dangerous people of all. In fact, I should say, I've seen more trouble caused in church by religious lost Baptists than I've ever seen caused by the lost. Now we see the conspirators, we see the conspiracy. In verse 14a, we see the compliments. Notice the compliments that they pay Jesus in verse 14a. And they came to him and said, teacher. These men come to Jesus and they try to use a psychological trick. They come to him with flattery. Uh, People will do that one day. They, They will try to butter you up before they drop the hammer on your head. That's what these men are doing. That they come to Jesus and they call him teacher. It's a word that is translated in the King James as master. Then they begin to share their compliments with Jesus. Here's what they are basically saying. They are saying, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and, and, and that you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not the kind of man who can be manipulated, but you truly teach the way of God. Everything they said about Jesus was actually true. But they didn't believe a word of it. This is nothing more than an insincere flattery designed to cause Jesus to drop his guard and say something stupid. Given the way this man have treated Jesus in the past, you can almost hear the sarcasm in their voices. It's as if they are saying it, they are saying this with a snare a sneer in the, under their breath. They are not sincere in what they are saying to Jesus. This trick might have worked with an ordinary man. We love compliments, don't we? We love being flattered. One man says, flattery is like perfume. Smell it, but don't drink it. This trick might have worked. But not with the Lord Jesus. He, he knew their motives and he could see the condition of their hearts. If you look at verse 15. Now notice, we see the, the, the conspiracy, the, the conspirators, the conspiracy, we see the compliments. And verse 14b to verse 15, we see the challenge. There's a challenge there. That their sarcastic flattery out of the way, they, they, they now get to the real reason for their visit. They ask Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. The, the text was a Paul text that every Roman subject was required to pay 
each year. The poll text uh, was a denarius, which was a day's pay for the common worker. For, for both of these groups, this was a matter of the separation of church and state. That the Pharisees believed that religion was superior to the state. The Herodians believed that the state was superior to religion. That the Herodians probably did not mind paying the tax because they liked all the benefits that they received from Rome. One commentator said that the Herodians held that government was dominant over religion. They would agree that taxes must be paid to Caesar rather than to God. That the Pharisees, on the other hand, hated the tax because they detested Rome. They hated Rome and recoiled against using a coin that bore a graven image of the emperor. This commentator continues to explain on the Pharisees. He says, the Pharisees believed that the state and all other power and authority were to be subject to religious rule. Therefore, they were strongly against paying taxes to a foreign king. Paying taxes to a secular government was an infringement upon God's right. In other words, they come to Jesus to ask him of paying this tax text if it is lawful or allowed by God. They were trying to force Jesus into a corner where he is not able to answer properly. They they thought there were only two possible answers here. They thought the answer was either a yes or a no. If Jesus said no, they could label him, as I said, as an insurrectionist and have him arrested for opposing Roman law. If he said yes, he would lose face with the common people or who also hated paying tax to Rome. Watch out for people who come to you asking questions about your beliefs. Some may sincerely do so by seeking the truth. Most, however, have seen something in you that they disagree with. They are not coming for information, but for confrontation. It always makes me a little bit nervous when someone approaches me with, a, a, with an off-the-wall question. You can tell by the way they come to you and begin the conversation that they are going to try and prove you wrong, that all they want is just a confrontation. All that they want is to show you how uh, deluded you are to believe in God. Well, not everyone. Some ask questions sincerely and they want the truth. But some just want the confrontation. They just want to fight over ideas. Now, we see first the Jews... And their question, and their attack, I mean. Secondly, we see the Lord and his answer. This is in verse 15b to verse 17. Now, let let, let us look at the passage again, shall we? Verse 15b, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. 
Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, the Lord and his answer, we see first of all in verse 15b, that it involved exposure. Jesus knew their hearts. They, 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 he knew they were nothing but hypocrites. He knew they had no respect for him and for his ministry. In fact, Jesus knew that they hated him and wanted him dead. He knew all of this. He knew their intentions and knowing their intentions, he confronts them publicly. He says, why put me to the test? The, the question that he's really asking basically is this. If you really believe all the things you, you just say, why do you feel like you have to put me to the test? The, the, the hypocrisy of this man is clearly revealed. They are exposed in public. With that one simple question, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of their hearts. He also exposes the words as nothing more than an insincere flattery. How do you like that phrase in verse 15? But knowing. This man thought they would pull a fast one over on Jesus. They They thought they could outwit him outsmart him and trap him in his words that they never realized that he could see exactly what they were he could see the very condition of their hearts he knew they were nothing more than hypocrites did you know that he knows your heart as well Jesus knows everything there is about you. He knows if you are saved. He knows if you are just playing church. He knows if you are just playing a part so others will think well of you. He knows where you truly stand with God. He knows you. There's a passage in Hebrews. Just want to read it for you. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13. As the writer of Hebrews uh, uh, rise to these people and cause them to enter rest. He says in verse 13, and no creature, and this is after speaking about the word of God and how the word of God exposes our hearts, how the word of God is, is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, how it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Notice verse 13, as he wraps up his idea of calling them to rest and to listen and obey the word of God. He says in verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything is exposed to him. Nothing can be hidden. We are people that can hide things so easily. But to God, nothing is hidden. He sees the very depths of our hearts. He sees things that we don't want others to see, things that we are embarrassed about, things that we try so hard to hide and to keep away from people. He sees There's no way of hiding anything to God. The question is, what does he see when he looks into your heart? 
Does he see saving faith and a new creature? Or does he see dead religion and nothing more? We, we may deceive one another, it's easy to do that, but we will never deceive him. He knows the truth about us and one day we will face him in judgment. One day we will stand before him and we will not be able to hide I was reading Revelation 20 during the week and it talks about uh, the earth and heaven fleeing away from him. And there was found no place for them to hide. My small, finite mind can't imagine what that looks like. If the heaven... And, and earth are fleeing away from him on that last day. Where can you hide? He knows the depths of our hearts. It involved an exposure. Not only did it involve an exposure, in verse 15c to verse 16, it involved an example. To, to answer their question, Jesus asked for a silver coin, a denarius. This was the Roman coin known as a denarius. As I mentioned earlier, it was a day's pay for the common worker in those days. Well, when they brought the coin, the coin to Jesus, he asked, whose image, is, uh, who is, whose image is this? And whose inscription does it bear? Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they answered him, confidently Caesar's. On the front of the Denarius was an engraving of the head of Caesar Tiberius. That was the image that was um, engraved on the coin. In Latin on the front were the words Tiberius Caesar, divine Augustus, Son of Augustus. On the back, in Latin again, were the words Pontifex Maximus, High Priest of the Roman Nation. So those were the inscriptions. It is no wonder the religious Jews uh, uh, bristled at using these coins. That they, that the idea of them using these kind of coins, coins that declared Caesar to be divine, to be uh, God. <laughs> that, that, that this was something they were not comfortable with doing. After all, it, 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 these coins claimed divinity for, for Caesar, and they claimed that Caesar was the high priest of the Roman Empire. What amazes me so much about this is the fact that Jesus had to borrow a coin to use an illustration. I know this is like a, a footnote, but I, I just wanted to focus on the footnote. He is the Lord of glory, and he doesn't have a denarius to his name. He had to borrow a coin. I mean, if he's the Lord of glory, I mean, he could just get his hand in the pocket. I mean, those days there were no pockets, but you know what I mean. <laughs> this man come to Jesus asking him about money, and he doesn't even have any. This reminds me of two important truths. First, I'm reminded that Jesus became poor, that I might become rich, that he, through 
his garments of glory to come to the world and lived like a pauper, like a poor man, so that uh, he may redeem me and identify with me, that I may receive the riches of heaven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Doesn't, isn't that what Ephesians chapter 1 say? He had nothing so that we might have everything. He gave up His glory to come to this world to redeem those who do not know Him. Imagine that. Our Lord could have chosen to be born in a palace with, with, with servants all around, but he chose to be born in a stable. He could have been born in a place that smelled of all the aromas of the world, but he chose to be in a stable that, 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 that smelled of uh, bun uh, 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 residues. Second, I'm reminded that Jesus lived his life in this world as a spirit-filled man. He did not need to have his pockets full of money to be content. He did not need money to define him. He did not need money to make him who he was. Today is so sad when people identify themselves with their, uh, their possessions. Even Christians. You, you find it on the pulpit as if, as if God's greatest desire for your life is to make you rich. As if great, God's greatest desire is to fill your pocket with money. It's possible to have all that money and die and go to hell. God's greatest desire for you is not for you to have all that the world can offer. Obviously, Christians are going to have uh, are going to be um, be blessed differently, aren't we? There are Christians that are going to be poor, as Jesus says in the word, "The poor you will always have with you." There are Christians that are going to be what we call, by the classifications of today, middle class. There are Christians that are going to be rich, but that is not the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is not to have all the material things of the world. The purpose of your life is knowing you, Jesus. There is no greater thing knowing you. The the, the purpose of our life is to know God and enjoy Him, to worship Him, and to be identified with Him. Jesus was not wearing a shiny suit. He had no, what do you call these people that are following the man of God? He did not have a limousine coming, uh, visiting people, or a horse uh, is the equivalent of that time. (laughs) He was the king of glory, the one who created everything. The one who uh, everything could not exist without him, yet he didn't own a boat, he had to borrow it. Yet he did not have a denarius, he had to ask for it. Isn't that amazing? The prosperity gospel is the worst thing that has ever happened to Christianity. Because the prosperity gospel wants us to look at other things and turn our eyes away from the Lord. 
all that you hear Sunday after Sunday. It, it, it must be said. To, 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 to come to church and all that you hear is you will be blessed. You will get more houses. You will get promotions. Is that all you hear? Jesus wants us to know Him. It not only involved um, an exposure, an example, but it also involved an exhortation. Jesus answers their question in this verse, but not in the way they expected. They, though they were only, they, they thought that there were only two um, possible answers. God and Rome, right? Jesus showed them that there were actually three answers. Let us, let's examine his response. First of all, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. When Jesus held up that denarius, that silver coin, he saw and the people confirmed that it had the image and inscription of Caesar on it. In that day, coins bore the image of a ruler that they, and were considered to be the property of that person. So Jesus says, this coin belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him if he asks for it. In this statement, Jesus recognizes the legitimacy of the state. I'll just remind you that we have an obligation to honor the authority of the state in our lives. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 to 7. God determined uh, and determines who our earthly rulers will be and we have a responsibility to obey them. In fact, our political, um, I want to say, um, our political posture in the world, the way we are to posture ourselves politically, is that we, 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 we can have political uh, uh, opinions that, that even differ among ourselves. Uh, but let me tell you something. Whether you like the EFF, or you like the ANC, or you like the DA, or whatever, I'm forgetting others. <laughs> And it happens that the EFF wins. And you did not want the EFF to win. And you went to the voting polls to vote so that the EFF doesn't win. And it, 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 it wins. It might break your heart as a Christian. But you still have a responsibility to pray for your leaders. And remember, Romans 13 was written by the time where there was a Caesar who was persecuting the church. And still, Paul writes in such a way that he recognizes that leader as being placed there by God. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that amazing as well? Whether whether ANC wins, whether EFF wins, whether DA wins, and you like it or not, you are called to have a posture of honoring and praying for your government. The people who lived in ancient Rome enjoyed many benefits by being in that empire. They enjoyed peace, protection, justice, safe travel, good roads, and many other things. All of that had to be paid for. So Rome taxed the people. 
The same is true today. We enjoy certain things in our society that must be paid for. Roads, schools, police, uh, fire protection, clean water, military protection. All have to be funded by the taxpayers. I don't know of anyone who enjoys paying taxes. I don't like the way the government spends our tax money. But we are commanded to do so by the word of God. I think we are overtaxed. That's just an opinion from me. But until that changes, we have a responsibility to pay them on time and in full. Well, when it comes to the Christian and the government, there are four basic attitudes that, we, that, that are out there. And let me share them all and tell you which one I think is biblical. First of all, there's an attitude that says God alone is our authority. There have been people who would totally separate themselves from worldly associations and go off to live apart from the world, from sinners and from human government. Uh, If you think about history, the monks in the ancient monastic systems come to mind here. They would separate themselves and go to the mountains and build and live there by themselves. Secondly, there is those who say the state alone is our authority. These are uh, people who would... Um, especially in our day, would hold to Marxist ideas. The, 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 this is the view of secularism. In, in, in this view, that state is the sole authority in, the, in a person's life. The, the state is the custodian of all that we enjoy and, and have in this world. It is owned by the state. This is the, the, the most dangerous of the four. Uh, three... Number three, God and the state, they say, are both authorities, but the state is dominant. Uh, mostly this is, uh, uh, um, what do you call, capitalists. They, they, they hold the system. The Marxists say the state alone is our authority. Uh, capitalists say God and state are both authorities, but the state is dominant. Right? And, and they use those to their own uh, indulgences. The people who hold this view pay God a lip service, but believe the word of the state has more authority than the word of God. Then there's four. These are people who say God and state are both authorities, but God is dominant. This is the biblical view. This was the very the view articulated by Jesus in these verses. Those who hold this view obey the state as long as the demands of the state do not violate the clear teachings of God. When God and the state are in opposition, God is the final authority. When God, when the state stands in opposition to the word of God, that is, in other words, when we are commanded to perform an immoral act, like I am called as a pastor to marry a, a, a homosexual couple. At that point, I am to defy the word of the state. I cannot call what God called evil good. When, 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 when the state calls us to go against our conscience, to stand against the clear word of God, we have a clear duty to oppose the state and obey the Lord, regardless of personal costs. There's much more that could be said about church-state relations, but I do not have time to go into all of it today. We, we can discuss it some other time. 
And, and again, he says, render to Caesar the, th- the things that are Caesar's. Then he goes and says, render to God the things that are God's. Now this confuses a lot of people. The, 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 the coin bore the image of Caesar. And thus it belonged to him, didn't it? It was his. And Jesus recognizes that this coin belongs to Caesar. It has his image. It has his inscription. Giving him what was his was not wrong, Jesus says. However, some things do not belong to Caesar. Now, this has far, far deeper implications that you can ever think. Just the coin bore the image of a man. But all men, including Caesar, bear the image of God. You render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You render to God the things that are God's. God calls us to render ourselves and ask ourselves, who do I belong to? Jesus is saying, give Caesar his money because it bears his image. It, It is his, but your devotion belongs to God. Because you bear his image, you are his. In other words, you belong to God through and through. From your head to your pocket. (laughs) Why do I mention pocket? (laughs) Everything about you belongs to God. Including what you are rendering to Caesar. It belongs to God. In fact, you are honoring, you are rendering it to Caesar because you acknowledge the fact that everything in the world belongs to God. And God allows it to be so. Every human being in this world was created in the image of God. Genesis 1 verse 26, 27. Thus he owns us and he has the right to demand that we yield ourselves to his will for our lives. Even if you are not saved, let me tell you, the Lord owns you by right of creation. If you are saved, he owns you by right of creation and by right of redemption. Just as Caesar has the right to demand what is his, God has the right to demand what belongs to him. Every human being has an obligation to give God their worship, their obedience, their praise, their love, their gratitude. We owe him for being who he is and for all that he gives to us. Life, air, water, food, shelter, family, etc. It all belongs to him and we honor, we owe him honor. We owe him honor, him alone. Who do you belong to? You bear the image of God. That image you bear is a symbol of divine ownership. It is like uh, most of our clothes. When you look at the label, it tells you where it it came from. Made in China. Um, It tells you the label that it is owned by Adidas or whatever uh, label that you are wearing. The image of God on us is a symbol of ownership. God has the right to tell you how to live. He has the right to tell you how to believe. He has the right to demand your obedience. He has the right to demand that you receive Him as Son. 
His son as your savior. According to uh, Romans 13 verse 4, the state has the power of the sword. When you fail to obey the state, there will be consequences such as imprisonment. In other, in other states, there are consequences like death. When we fail to obey the Lord, there are also consequences. And greater consequences that the state can ever uh, meet out. There's hell for the unbeliever and discipline for the believer. Jesus is telling those men and us that we have an obligation to honor the rule of the state, but we have a higher obligation to commit our lives to the Lord and obey Him and His word. Yielding to our state is our earthly duty. Yielding to the Lord is our eternal duty. Are you truly saved today? Have you yielded your life and will to Jesus Christ? Have you bowed to Him and confessed Him as Lord and Savior and received Him into your life? Have you believed the gospel? Are you yielded to His authority? Or or do you do as you please, working Him in any uh, way that you feel like it? Do you live as one owned by the Lord or do you serve your own master? If you are not saved, you need to come to Jesus and he will save you. If you are not surrendered, and many, if most, are not, then you need to get to him and yield to him. Yield to his will for your life. Now, as the Lord, when they heard the Lord's answer, it says they marveled at him. Literally, they stood there with their chins to their chest. They came to trap him. But he turned the tables on them and he trapped them. They could not argue with what he had said to them. They simply left. I do not want you to simply leave today. I want you to examine your heart and see where you stand with the Lord today. We're going to share in the communion in just a few minutes. When we do so, we examine our hearts, we examine ourselves. Where do I stand? Where, where am I with the Lord? Or do you trust Jesus for your salvation? Do you truly belong to Him? If not, come to Him. Have you yielded the totality of your life to the control and dominion of the Lord? If not, come to Him. Are you truly giving God the things that are God's? In other words, are you giving your life to Him? Committed to Him? To honoring Him? Do you truly belong to Him? Let us pray. Lord, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ who who came from heaven to earth to show the way to go to the cross for us, lay down his life, draw us and reconcile us to yourself. Today we stand reconciled because you are king. May we yield our lives to you, knowing that we belong to you above all. 
May we render our lives to you. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen.